May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. Good morning. Hi. <laughs> Never would guess you were there. <laughs> last Sunday, we had a wonderful and inspiring guest preacher. But last Sunday was also the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent didn't get mentioned. Um, so today, I'm going to talk about Advent. I'm going to talk about words, and I'm going to talk about love. I don't think Advent gets terribly much attention as a liturgical season. It's a time for looking inward and self-assessment, and as we all know, there are so many, many temptations to focus outwardly, to do so many things that seem important. Now, in case you guys haven't already guessed it, words are among my very, very favorite things. Just ask my wife. If there is any way to say something simple in big words laced with complexity, I am going to say it that way. She is unimpressed by my claim that nothing is ever as simple as it seems. The knockdown, drag out arguments in our household are metaphysical. Is it simple or is it complex? And we've decided to split the difference here. Love may be everybody's favorite subject. I'm not sure we always know what love means, what it means to love, what, we, what should be loved, but for sure we are all in love with love. So if you love, hang in there while I talk first about Advent and then about words. I'm going to make my way to talking about love. I'm going to make my way to talking about loving Jesus. Pardon me? What is that's, okay. that's okay. Thank you. you. You know, if you said it wasn't, this sermon would be in real trouble. <laughs> I am not the archdeacon. I cannot ad lib it yet. But my point really is a simple one. For God's words to make a difference in how we live our lives, to take charge of our lives, our love for him is as important as our understanding. For God's words to make a difference in how we live our lives, to take charge of our lives, our love for him is as important as our understanding. That's the bottom line. The rest of this sermon is about how we come to know this simple and important truth in the words we've heard today. I don't think the detail is too complex, and it's been on my heart to share it. The season of Advent has us on a journey. The themes of the readings for each Sunday mark stages of that journey. Each of these stages is a building block to take us spiritually closer to the Feast of the Nativity of our Lord. The readings for Advent 1 focus on our hearts and our wills. The readings for Advent 2 focus on our minds. Advent 3 focuses on hope. Advent 4 focuses on our awareness of the imminence of something very important just around the corner. I call these stages of a journey because all of them connected with each other prepare 
for us, for our Lord's presence in our world and in our lives at Christmas. In a certain sense, Jesus is reborn every single Christmas. None of these stages of Advent is sufficient preparation by itself. The heart must be in the right place. The mind must be in the right place. The hope must be in the right place. The sense of imminence must be in the right place in order to get us in the right place to receive he who is coming at Christmas to meet Jesus as we ought to meet him. Think of the Sundays of Advent as a series of handoffs, of instructions, one Sunday to the next, to the next, to the next. Today is Advent too, so let's think about what's going on here. I said that Advent too puts a particular focus or accent on the mind because the collect and all of the lessons are about the words of Scripture, their meaning and their potential impact. We ask in the collect for God's grace to digest the words of Scripture. We ask that the words of God hold us true to a righteous course of life. We ask that we digest those words so that our natures are governed and who we are and what we do is guided by those words. To digest the words means that the mind of God expressed in Scripture becomes our mind and our guide to what we do. That's the transformation we pray for in today's collect. But if we have to rely on words alone to get God's mind to be our mind, we're going to come up short. And I think, surprisingly in some ways, our lessons actually point to this conclusion. 2 Kings 22 tells us how the whole kingdom of Israel, how its mind was riveted by the words of God written in Deuteronomy. That's the book that's being referred to in our first lesson today. This book of the law was pulled from the rubbish that was created during the renovations of the temple in 621 B.C. According to what we read, the whole kingdom came together and pledged to keep the Lord's commandments, testimonies, and statutes with all their hearts and souls, and to do everything that was written in that book. Can you guys imagine the size of the tent that was needed for that revival meeting? Everybody was wild with enthusiasm about the words. That was in 621 B.C. But the spiritual renewal brought about by words alone, though there were God's words, fell apart in 587 B.C. In 587 B.C., God's judgment upon Israel's faithlessness led to the conquest of that kingdom. Paul, in Romans 15, is quoting God's words in Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and Isaiah 12. Commentators tell us that he's addressing a problem that's very familiar to him, um, and we're all aware of from our study of Scripture. Jewish Christians and God-fearing Christians, Christian Gentiles, who have become Christians, the Jewish Christians and the God-fearing Gentiles who've become Christians, are not getting along with each other. When Paul talks about a thorn in his side, 
I think sometimes that this is exactly what he's referring to. Paul prays for harmony between these factions and a unified voice in praising God, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. What Paul is saying, the words that he's using, are not new words to the Jews or the God-fearing Gentiles. He is not saying for the first time words that they have never heard. Jews and God-fearing Gentiles had always been deeply immersed in the study of Scripture. They knew Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and Isaiah 11. They knew it already. The culture in which they lived was an oral culture. So many of these folks actually probably had this stuff memorized. But apparently the authority of those words, though they were God's words, had not been enough to bring about obedience in practice. In Luke 21, Jesus tells us that though his words will not pass away at the last judgment, many will be in fear because his words, God's words, had not been enough to secure obedience. We were reminded by our guest preacher last week that on the last day, the sheep will be separated from the goats and that there will be an awful lot of goats. Now, presumably, the goats could read just as well as the sheep. So the sheep must have had something that the goats did not. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Well, okay, all this might seem like pretty depressing stuff. Here it is, Advent 2. We're trying to get our minds in the right place to receive the Lord in the right way. And we're confronted with the very familiar problem that there is a gap between our understanding of what Scripture tells us and our ability to put into practice what we very well understand, even when we have all the will in the world to try to do just this. This is the gap between the talk and the walk, the problem of making what we know and believe actually effective. Nothing new, as I've said, we've all been here many, many times more than we would like. This is a real bummer. But I want to suggest that there is a gift in our confronting this problem in Advent as in no other time of the liturgical year. The gift is that Advent points straight to Christmas and straight to what will happen at Christmas as the solution to the problem of the gap. The gap reflects what we cannot do for ourselves and the fact that we're confronting again what we cannot do for ourselves prepares us for Christmas. The gap that is the failure of words to change our lives gets closed when and if we receive with real love Jesus, who at Christmas is reborn into our lives. I believe that the fact that the Lord enters the world as a baby is specifically intended to call out our love. Babies seem to have a reliable way of doing just that. And here's the thing, genuine love for any person, any person, gets that person's words to count for us, to have value in our lives, 
to have impact on what we do. The words of someone we love are the signs and the guideposts that shape our lives. So what does all this add up to? It adds up, I think, to making it so clear that our love for God is a crucially important ingredient for his words to make a difference in who we are and what we do. The power of God's words to change our lives does not reside just in the words. And it doesn't reside even in the unmistakable fact that that it's God who's speaking those words. The power of those words is put into gear by our intense affection for the person who speaks those words. Without this response of love to the incarnate Lord coming at Christmas, all the words in the world, even even coupled with all of the will in the world, are not going to fully bring God's words to life in our lives. The point of Advent 2, I think, is to make it so clear that though we need these words to know what to change in our lives, love is what bridges the gap between what we can do and what we can't do. We need a true and real love for God to be able to change our lives. And as usual, God comes to meet us more than halfway. He comes to us at Christmas in the person of the child Jesus because he loves us. May we respond to his love with our own and with all our hearts. May we thereby make his words truly count. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.